Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Business of Freelancing. This week, we'll be talking about signs that a client isn't really worthwhile and how you might be able to guard against them and save yourself in the process. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Business of Freelancing. This week on our panel, we have Jeremy Green. Hey, everybody. And Eric Dietrich. Hi, everyone. And Marg Reffel. Hey, guys. And I'm Ruben Lerner. So we've previously spoken about horror stories when things go bad with clients. What we're going to talk about this week is how can we maybe identify those bad clients in advance before things go wrong? What kind of signs can we look for to identify them and warn ourselves before we get into hot water to stay away? Um, so who has some brilliant ideas for how to stay away from the bad guys? Uh, so one thing to look out for that's not necessarily indicative of a bad client, but a potentially bad project is if it has to be started tomorrow and has to be delivered next week. Like if there's not much time for you to kind of do your normal due diligence on a potential client and figure out if they're going to be a, a good fit or if they are wanting to skip, you know, maybe an exploratory project and just go straight to, no, you've got to start this immediately. Like anything that's really on a short time frame and under the gun often has the potential to go bad because it probably is on a short timeline because of previous <laughs> mismanagement. And so like, it's just a continuation of bad things that got it to the position to where it, for, where it comes onto your radar and you're looking at it. Yeah, definitely ones that have that sort of hard, hard timeline and hard cutoff with absolutely no flexibility. I think those have probably been one of the, the biggest red flags going forward for sure. Definitely for me. I've sort of found like to, to generalize, I guess a little bit. So like um, a client coming in and saying, I need you to get started like tomorrow. Don't mind the paperwork, et cetera. Just go like um, is an instance of like, if I zoom out, if you have a call with a client and, or a prospect and the way that goes is that they're kind of trying to dictate all the terms to you as opposed to you saying, this is how I work. This is what I typically do. If they're flipping that around either by force or maybe because you haven't set up those terms and they're dictating a lot of how things are going to work, that can be a bad sign. Um, it, it isn't always necessarily, especially like with enterprise clients that just, that's how they have to work. But I'd say in general, that's something to look out for where you're saying I'd be comfortable starting this next week. And they're like, no, we need it tomorrow or um, maybe you prefer a certain project management methodology or a certain set of tooling. That's how you work with your clients. And this one comes in and said, no, that's not going to work for me. That's not going to work for me. Because either, you know, it might be like a cultural or, or a thing where they're, they're going to be a problem, or it might just be that it's a poor fit and, and you're going to be miserable either way. I found that a lot of, you know, what I think of as maybe bad clients or there's nothing wrong with them. It's just not a fit. So, I think a lot of it, you know, who is dictating what's going to happen in the sales meeting? And if it's not you, that's the potential for some pain. So I, th I think, Eric, you, you just hit on something there, which is many points. But like we've often made the distinction um, between um, sort of coming in as an expert, as a consultant, offering 
expertise and advice and coming in and I forget what the term is. I always forget it. Um, just sort of, sort of adding manpower, adding sort of, you know, hands and eyes and brains to, uh, to an existing project. What's the term that's been used? Oh, I can't remember offhand. Staff augmentation. Staff augmentation. There you go. There you <laughs> go. And so if they come to you and say, this is the deadline, this is the project, this is the methodology, and by the way, this is the price, um, take it or leave it, they're not really interested in you as a consultant. They're interested in you in just being another cog in their machine and getting through it as quickly as possible, and they will treat you accordingly. Yeah, and I definitely think scenarios like that foreshadow a lot of micromanagement along the way, too, that can happen. Um, yeah, which can lead to a whole other, a whole other host of issues and, and more than anything, scope creep and timeline creep and all of that kind of stuff that can come as a result of that. And then ultimately pushing the timeline further so you can't get it done by that amount of time as well. So one of the, like a very specific and granular one for me historically that I've learned the hard way at times, if you are talking with someone and you have kind of a set price range or, you know, I don't know if you have an hourly rate, whatever the case may be, if you quote fixed bid things or productized service and you're talking to somebody and you're at the very upper end of their price range and they're at the bottom end of yours. So if it's your cheapest offering or the cheapest thing you do and they're trying to negotiate you down from that, whether you let that happen or not, and I personally would not recommend like giving them price, um, but whether you give a little to get the business or whether they come up to your price point, that in my experience has been um, a recipe for misery because they come into it feeling like you're overpriced and that you should be giving them the Cadillac treatment and you go into it feeling like they're your least valuable client because they're at the bottom end of your range and they're demanding the world and it's not even worth your time. And that's like a, a super poor, you know, fit to go into a project where they think you owe them way more than, than you do. And, you know, vice versa on the other side that you think you really should pay them minimal attention. Uh, that's not going to be a lot of fun most likely. I actually have a big client, uh, like a Fortune 100 company, where once every year or two, they ask me if they are paying um, the most, the least, or sort of the, the average, where, where they fall in terms of what they're paying. Um, and I used to think it was because they didn't want to think that they were being ripped off, that they were paying more than everyone else. And I think that's still part of it. But I think they also want to know that they're not paying much less than everyone else for exactly that reason, because they realize that if they're paying less than everyone else, they're going to be a very low priority for me, and I'm going to treat them accordingly. They'd rather pay a bit more and get good service and good treatment. Um, and clients should realize this, right? Like, you know, the people who pay more are going to get better service. Uh, that's just sort of the way it is. That's fascinating. It kind of makes me think, like, that's a tactic I should employ for, for our vendors, um, you know, where, where they're variably priced. Like, I, I would actually like to know that myself. That's a really savvy thing to do. So I actually, I found it also interesting because people can lie, right? But is your incentive then to lie and say it's higher, it's lower? So I just say, I always say, oh, you're paying exactly what my average rate is. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I don't know what everyone else's strategy would be. Uh, by the way, similarly, when I want to raise rates on clients, I tell them, sort of I raise them on all my new clients, then I go back to my old clients and say, oh, you're now paying less than anyone else. And that definitely gives them incentive to feel like, oh, well, I, should, I guess I should be paying more because I don't want him to drop me. I've, I've mentioned that comparator in raising rates as well. Like, 
we grandfathered you in, but you're now paying less than everybody else. And I can't make a business case to do this indefinitely. So usually it's kind of a heads up that a time is coming when I'm going to raise the rate. Um, and I found mm -hmm. that, you know, to explain that you're paying the least and it's untenable. I found that to be, you know, a good piece of messaging for what is inherently a pretty hard conversation. What about rates? Like, like I mean, you know, I talked a little bit about them sort of wanting to pay less or than, than you would normally get. But what do you think about people sort of negotiating with you on rates and negotiating uh, in a very hard-nosed way? It can definitely be a, a signal that it's somebody you may not want to work with and that they may be more concerned with like feeling like they got a great deal than in seeing the project succeed. I've found, because my business Hit Subscribe has clients kind of all over the world, it seems, and maybe others have experienced this too, but it seems that negotiation can vary culturally. Like for me personally, I don't like to negotiate, but I've learned that even though clients, you know, whether it's in some countries, cultures, whatever, that they may negotiate, that I just expect that more from certain cultures than others. And sometimes after that negotiation phase, they can be great clients, even though it's not how I would prefer to enter a deal. And so like, we don't budge on price, but we might throw in, you know, some kind of extra or go back and forth that way. So, you know, I consider it personally to be maybe a sign that I'm not going to enjoy the negotiation process because I'd rather just name prices and have that be it. But I don't know if I would always consider it to be a flag. Um, like we've had fine experiences with negotiation, heavy prospects. I don't, have others experienced this, that, that like negotiation itself can vary by culture or place? Even if you're not really willing to negotiate on price, there's still some room in there to be able to negotiate on like what you offer for that price. So to be able to scale back your services accordingly, so you're not taking less money for the same services, but you're scaling both back accordingly. And how I've approached it with some clients who actually end up being some of my most long-term clients, we can phase it, out, phase it out. So say they go into something not thinking that it's gonna be a hugely costly project, and the quote comes back to be significantly more than they than they anticipated, we'll go back and we'll scale back something into what's like an MVP of phase one. And then we plan for phase two. So in some ways, it's a negotiation of what work for what cost can be done now versus what can be held off for the future as well too. And I think more than anything, they've really appreciated that because it's like, okay, let's work with what you can do and also get you some money coming in so that you can pay for the next phase when that comes up as well. That's really smart. Um, and one of the big red flags I think about negotiation is if the price that they're trying to get to is just totally in a different ballpark than the uh, gains that they hope to see, you know, like I had one client come to me once pr prospect with a, a project that they wanted to do that, you know, after getting into why questions and, you know, what's this going to do for your business, they expected it to, uh, you know, increase their bottom line by millions of dollars in the first year and tens of millions of dollars every year after that. But they wanted to pay like two thousand dollars for this project, and just like yeah, no, like that was a sign that they just fundamentally did not understand right. what was involved in the project and how to, you know, invest in a business that would be, you know, sustainable and long term. And it was just a very big red flag that okay, these people either 
are fundamentally not serious or just don't get it. And I, I'm going to run away. I don't want any part of that. Eric mentioned before that um, it's a, often a cultural thing with negotiations. And I can tell you in Israel, um, every time, literally every time I start working with a new client, I get a call from the purchasing department. And I finally learned that purchasing department is the negotiation department. And basically their job uh, and what they have to show their bosses is they have reduced your price somewhat. And it's such a cultural thing that I've recently started saying to people, no, I won't negotiate on price. And there's this stunned silence at the other end of the phone, like, wait, like you've never encountered it. And I even remember someone saying, wait, you mean you'll go without the work? I said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have enough work. I'll, I'll go without it, without the price. And they just sort of don't know what to do with it. One company, I think I've told this story before, one company, the woman basically said, listen, I have to show something, something. Please tell me, like, give me any discount. I said, how about $10 a day? She said, done. And so, like, <laughs> with that company, I charge them exactly the same as I do for trading with everyone else, minus $10. By the way, they pay for, a, they pay for lunch at a local restaurant, and you can be sure I get a very big, lunch that day and feel great <laughs> about it <laughs> you know it makes me think that like a, a general um property of what we're seeing here when it comes to negotiation is if you can sort of divine the reason for the negotiation so like if it's if it's a cultural mandate to negotiate that's a much different thing than um you know i want to get this work for like a fraction of the price or you know sometimes maybe it's that they're blasting out some kind of rfp request to tons of people and they're saying, well, this person over here will do it for half the rate you will. Um, one of those things is a red flag. The other one isn't. You know, if they're comparing you to, like, you know, labor or somebody who is almost not doing the same thing as you, or if they seem to just be, like, completely misaligned with you in budget, um, like, that latter one is a red flag. It was kind of like what I was talking about earlier, negotiating at the bottom end, end of your price range. If you sell a service for 5K, and the client says, look, my top budget here is 2,500. There's nothing wrong with them. But, you know, due to their budget constraint, they're just not your client. And if you try to make it that way, it'll be miserable. So I think if there's negotiation going on and you can figure out what's driving it, uh, that will probably tell you a lot. So I think maybe people listening are wondering, was there a moment in time that you guys that you had that realization or if something client-wise happened that was able to give you sort of that spidey sense and allow you to differentiate and call those clients out a little bit earlier um, because as you guys as we've got it's kind of gone through it can be a fine line between people that have the best of intentions and maybe just not an awareness of how it can be rolled out and what the options are versus somebody who is literally just looking for the best bargain that they can get. So I've personally learned about like my rule about negotiating at the bottom of a price range, uh, just the hard way by um, doing that a bunch of times and having it always be miserable and kind of then like putting it together in retrospect. And so now when I see that happening and I've got my service for 5k and they say, well, this other guy will give it to me for 3000. I just say like, you want to do that then? That sounds like a good deal for you. You know, God bless. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, for me, that became a pretty easy rule, just, you know, through battle scars. Um, I'm trying to think of other things that have uh, kind of come about through experience. 
So a big one kind of is some of what we let off the call with, if a client is like culturally hair on fire. So if like right from the get go, they're saying we need to get started yesterday and like this is super important. Um, I'm leery of that because I like to be, what are the, the work quadrants like um, important and urgent, important but not urgent. Uh, it's like the Eisenhower quadrants or something. Anyway, um, I like to be in the important but not urgent range and you know, dealing with a client who operates constantly behind the eight ball is miserable. So like, I've also developed that sense through some battle scars. Like if they're already behind the eight ball on a sales call, like, whoa, we should probably, you know, consider that uh, to be a flag. It's interesting too, because I also have found it's helped having conversations with clients saying, going back to what you're saying of people wanting stuff done yesterday, basically. Uh, going back to them saying, especially if they have something complex, not only can we not take it on right away, but I'm always leery if they want something complicated, if they find someone who can drop everything and take it right away. Like that's probably not the best sign that it's, because most, at least most developers I know have a queue. So they have some sort of like, waiting time generally to be able to get to work with them. Uh, I mean, there's always flukes, say like a project falls through and all of a sudden you have the time and the timing works out perfectly to take on something else. But typically, I also try my best to educate clients and say like, look, we can't start this until next week or the week after. Uh, we have the same conversations around money too. So try to be mindful of that this is my price range. If you find somebody for a thousand bucks cheaper, great. But if you find somebody for a quarter of the price, I really need to be honest that that will not get done properly. Like there is, there does need to be a minimum threshold for the work to be done well. And I do try to educate people my, like to the best of my ability, but ultimately there's going to be those people who are like, I don't care. And then they leave. That's fine. They were never your client to begin with. But um, yeah. I found that that helps a lot trying to trying to educate them. At least then they think that it's coming from a good place. And even though if you can't help them, if they're out of your price range, trying to give them some advice to be able to get a product that they want to get at the end of the day, but also something that's going to serve them and not cost them three times as much down the road as well. I think one of the reasons I've been so happy uh, doing training over the last number of years is that I basically largely got out of that whole conversation because it's basically a product. And I say, this is the price and you can take it or you can leave it. And maybe there'll be some small negotiation like I described earlier, but it's not like I have to start saying, well, this will take three days, five days, 10 weeks, 20 weeks, whatever. And then we start negotiating over scope and time. It's a course, it's four days. It costs you this, take it or leave it. And it has reduced my stress on that front a lot. Because before that, it was never ending. And I mean, Mark, you asked sort of how did we evaluate it before? In my case, it was always poorly. And I didn't have a lot of <laughs> bad clients, but I had a fair number. And I would sort of come home and tell my wife, oh, I met with so-and-so. And I would say about half the time that I'd say, so there was this quirk and this weird thing and this other strange thing, but I think it'll be okay to work with them. And she'd be like, no. No, what you're describing is just no. not going to work <laughs> at all. And when I listened to her, I was very grateful. And when I did not listen to her, 
um, she was generally quite right. Like she picked up, even from my conversation describing, like my description of my conversation with the client was enough to set off all sorts of red flags for her and say, this is not a reliable sort of person to work with. So having someone else to bounce it off of, um, I mean, my wife is available if someone wants to talk to her, uh, <laughs> but like basically is, is I think very, very useful also just get a sanity check on these things. Yeah. So I just wanted to echo that real quick because like, as you were saying that I realized the exact same thing is true about me that if I would have, you know, and now what we're doing with hit subscribe is also pretty productized service. So it's just, are you going to like work with us or not? This is how we work. But from a lot of years of, you know, doing solo consulting, management consulting, and sort of some of the things in my background, my wife was better at telling from how I talked about a sales conversation than I was from thinking about it. She was better at knowing whether it would be a good fit or not by like the way I talked about it. And I think that that's fascinating that I'm not the only one that's true of. So I feel like, yeah, having somebody who probably knows you pretty well and is listening because you want to close the sale, right? Like you, right. you want it to work out. The client wants it to work out. So you both kind of make some concessions, but like somebody else can really hear and say, Oh no, not this again. Like I remember how you <laughs> talked before about this other client. So I think that's a great thing to point out. Ruben. Mastermind groups can be great for this as well, mm. uh, which we've talked about previously. You know, it's a, somebody that knows you well, but isn't uh, as invested in, whatever the financial situation is as you are and can have a little bit of detachment to say, you know, that looks a little bit shady. And even if you need the money, it might not be a great deal for you. One thing I, I wrote down here, in my list of notes as being sort of a, a, a red flag is free advice. I don't know about you, but I've definitely had a few potential clients over the years. I had one just like two summers ago where they really wanted to do something with me and I started the summer with a phone call and about four or five months later, after lots of exchanging email, I finally realized, oh my God, this is going nowhere and sucking up lots of time. And I emailed them and said, listen, I'd love to help you, but like, we're going to have to actually talk about paying because this is what I do. I did not hear anything from them after that. And I was thinking, boy, once again, I was snookered <laughs> into giving free advice. It wasn't really worth that much in the end to them, I don't think. Um, and any, any sense along those lines as well from you guys? Well, that's a tough one for me because my tendency is so much to give away tons of free advice. And I can't really think of ever being burned with it. But like, I think any time, like, I think that's happened to me that, that people have, you know, initiated these email conversations. And I do like a reader question column on my blog. So a lot of people write into me asking for advice. And I think what happens is I just kind of naturally like let that peter out after a while. Like, if it just keeps going on and on, I might get less responsive or just be upfront and say like, listen, um, I just don't have a lot of time to do this. I'm sorry. But um, I can't think of it ever having led to like a bad client. It just maybe is a time suck in like the pre-sales phase, if you will, at least for me personally. Well, that's a fair point. That's true. I mean, I could see where it could lead to a bad client. Like if, if what they get used to is being able to kind of, consistently like violate the scope of your agreement for more stuff. You know, I could see it being a red flag in like somebody else's life that it had happened to it. Just not me personally. 
I've had that happen sometimes at the end of projects. So we do have a very clear ending time and there's either two weeks or four weeks, depending on the size of the project of support afterwards. The turnaround time is very clear on the support and the dates are lined out and everything like that in the contract. But I definitely find afterwards, if it's technical support or something in the training they don't understand, absolutely, um, I'll hop on that. But I do find that, say there's it's one or two or three months down the road where, and I'm to- totally fine to ha- hop on and have these conversations with clients because I really love talking about this stuff. Like how can, how can they grow or they want to introduce this new product and how can they make it work on the site, which is great. But I have had a couple instances where now they just want to like hop on a brainstorming call every week. And it's like, oh, now we're getting into a bit of a gray area. So I've had that happen a couple times um and that's good that's a brings up something good like how would you how would you end something like that and ultimately I think the two times that it became pervasive I did have to say to them well if you want to continue we ha- I have these packages and that kind of stuff and like Reuben was saying the communication stopped pretty quickly after that <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think I'd do something similar and say listen, we can put together a retainer consulting package if you want to keep this going. And, I, you know, personally, I found that people, if you kind of point that out and say, listen, you know, this is a lot of my time and I've got a lot of other things I could do running my business and that need my attention. Like, I can't keep going like this, but, you know, we could structure something. I think most people are understanding of that. And if they realize that, you know, maybe it's because they're like, oh, I, I can't keep going on this gravy train, or maybe they feel kind of bad, and they're like, oh, I didn't, you know, realize how much I was kind of violating your boundaries, I'll stop. Um, I, I've found most people seem to be pretty understanding about that. It's hard for me to imagine too many conversations where somebody was like, how dare you, you know, keep giving me free advice. Yeah, I did have one of those um, when it all went wrong situations, which is why I'm like, uh, a little scared of those sometimes. So I had, I think this was a few years ago, it was in 2017 and, and talking about Spidey Senses, I had this amazing client who I had for a few years before. We still work together to this day. Uh, it's a really incredible company to work with. They're, they're part of them is a nonprofit. They're doing really great stuff. And one day they gave me a referral to someone else. 90% of my business is through referrals. So this is totally, this is totally sort of common behavior. So I had a referral we had one sort of discovery call with the referral and immediately you, I had that like sinking, you know, like sinking feeling that you get. It doesn't happen a ton, but it's like sinking feeling you get right after you talk to someone that you're like, oh, this is not, it's just not a good, a good match. So I went back to my initial client and I was like, hey, I just don't think it's a good fit. I really appreciate the reference though because I want to follow up with them. And I, then I made the cardinal mistake of telling the person that I couldn't work with, that it was because I didn't have the time in my schedule. So <laughs> lo and behold, they said they would wait. And the problem is there's no way out of that. So <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't ever use that. Just suck it up and say that it's not a good fit or like some form of the honest answer, but saying that you don't have time right now is a lot of people's go-to. Please do not do that. I was burned so hard. So. And this person, wow. as soon as I started working with them, they 
every day without us booking calls would just call me two or three times a day on my cell phone. Now I also just don't give my cell phone number out to um, to clients. A couple clients have it, but it takes a long time to get that trust. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it was a few cell phone calls a day, most of them lasting 60 to 90 minutes. Like it was, oh my God, it was insane. Um, And it was like brainstorming about her business and uh, so at that point in time, this was a few years ago. So I was like, I can't afford to get the money back. I just have to like work through this. Also, I don't have like, she's eaten up so much of my time. I don't have any much other client work at the moment. So I plowed through, we finally made it to the end of the project. like four months later, um, we launched the site, everything was in writing. And then she came back a month later with legal notices because she was suing me so it was just like i don't i don't even know it ultimately got dropped because everything was unfounded um it was it was just one of those things where you knew from the moment you meet them that it's just not it's just not a good fit i don't know many people that would be a good fit maybe someone who's very new and just like also i wouldn't want to traumatize them like that but if anything, the biggest lesson learned from that was don't, if you don't want to work with somebody, don't tell them it's because you don't have time right now because they might offer to wait. What did she <laughs> do on the call that like triggered your unease? Do you remember? Oh, I'm trying to, it's so hard to pinpoint. Truthfully, I think it was all not necessarily the things she said, say anything specifically triggering, but the ways the way she said it, it seemed very, um, very frantic, very unorganized. So there was, um, there was those sort of mannerisms um, that I've definitely, if anything, I am grateful for it because it's made me sort of acutely aware of those. It's interesting because I do find that there's sometimes those instances of, okay, the universe or whatever it is out there is going to like throw you this issue and see how you deal with it ultimately I dealt with it not great because I still followed through with it and um, and ignored my intuition but a few months after that I had a very very similar call and this person was actually pretty high profile so it was really hard to say no because you have that internal conflict of like oh I mean they're paying well and then also the exposure because like they have a lot of uh, like a lot of clout behind them, but after I took the deposit for them, after the second call, I was like, "Nope, I'm not going through this again." I refunded all her money, and uh, I've never had a client issue like that since. So, I learned my lesson. I don't need any more lessons for that. <laughs> but yeah, the biggest takeaway for sure: be on- as honest as you can with people. If they're not meant to work with you, they're not meant to work with you, and. There's no harm in saying that you're not a good fit because you're doing them a favor too. They will find someone else that's a better fit for them. Wow. Wow. You know, I've found, I don't know how else to put this, but like speaking of the spidey sense, like I've had this go both ways where like, I don't want to put it in such crude terms, but it's almost like I had an initial call with somebody and I'm like, I just don't think I like this person. Uh, Like trust your gut with that um, because if that's your first impression of somebody, that rarely gets better. It will probably just get worse. And like, there's something your subconscious is probably telling you, um, you know, and maybe there's nothing wrong with the person. Maybe you're just not like a personal fit or something. 
but I've ignored those impulses to my detriment and wound up giving a refund. Uh, it's been a long time since I was like billing in arrears and in, in such a place where I'm like, I can't give this money back. So I've been fortunate enough to even when I kind of go against my impulse, say like, all right, never mind. Here's a refund, you know, a few weeks later. Um, but I think that is a powerful thing, even if you can't exactly articulate it. And, and for those of you listening out there, if you don't like have a great system, but you do have this sense of like, Ooh, I have a bad feeling about this. Like, I don't think that, that the way that goes too often is like you have an initial call where you get a really bad feeling. Then you have a second call and everything's great. And, and you have a great project. Like, I think that's a pretty rare situation. So one other thing that I think is a red flag that you should look out for is if um, the client is reluctant to put in writing what the contingency plans are if a project does go south. Like, you know, some projects are just big and hard to predict what's going to happen. And you as an expert may be able to see potential pitfalls that could come up that could dramatically increase the scope or the timeline or something that's going to mean you end up having to put more time in it. And if you can spot those things, you want to be able to have that in the contract. Something that says, you know, if this third party system that we're trying to integrate with doesn't actually match the docs that they have, that's going to make the whole thing take longer. And I'm going to have to charge you more. Like if the client says, Oh, let's not put that in this contract. Let's just address that when, and if we get to it, that's not going to work out in your favor. What's mm. going to happen is they're going to say, Hey, you agreed to this contract that says you're going to have this thing done by this date for this price. And that's the end of the story. There's not going to be a second round of negotiation for, Oh, this thing that we predicted and said, let's, let's put off trying to figure out what happens if the circumstance arises. That's going to be bad. I'm also curious, like I've, I now mostly work with big companies, but I still work with some startups and smaller ones. But I've definitely worked with some very, very small or one or two person startups even before they were funded. And I've uh, I, sometimes I, I worry, uh, or I used to worry about this, like, do they have money to pay me? How's that going to work out? And I've seen different approaches to how to deal with this. So one of them is Jonathan Starks, which is you just get payment up front. End of story. Um, the other that I've heard of is uh, Brendan Dunn would talk about going in with a mutual NDA. And the mutual NDA would be like, I'm not gonna spill the beans about your company and I'm not gonna spill the beans about the project and you're not gonna say anything about me, like basically mutual. And then he would like interrogate them about their company's finances so that, I mean, in a nice way, um, and, and it would be mostly so that he could know how much he could charge them, but also to make sure, yeah, these people are stable enough to be able to pay. Um, so I'm wondering like, how, how do you guys check make sure that your clients are actually stable enough to pay you or, or do they sometimes not? I've never had someone not pay. So knock on wood. Same uh, here. Yeah. I have, and I'm now on the Jonathan Stark plan of you oh. pay me up front or I don't start your project. Wow. Was it just that they like, did they keep saying that they were going to pay and then they just fell off the map or at some point were they just like, meh, and did you end up delivering the final product and then pulling it? Um, it was that they kept saying that they were going to pay and that they needed to have the project done. They were getting, you know, 
receiving revenue from having the project live. And once the project was live, that then they'd be able to pay, but it turns out they were just crappy at running a business. And not only did they not have the money to pay to get the project done, they didn't know how to do marketing and actually get people to start using the project to get revenue in, to be able to pay me. And then finally the company just went under and like, you know, you can't get payment from a company that doesn't exist. Oh man. Oh yeah. It was not fun. Oh, no, for sure. Yeah. I think one of the ways I do ensure it is in our contract. Um, it's usually 50, 50. So it's usually 50 up front, but then it's 50 before delivery. So ultimately if they don't, pay me the final payment um they don't get the product at the end of the day so i think that's sort of mitigated those there have been exceptions if i'm if i work really well with someone i know they have consistent income through their online courses and stuff like that too and maybe this is like a, a shopify store or something else uh, that they're building on top of the regular business that I know they can generate income through. And sometimes they need the payments divided up into to three or four just to match cash flow, cash flow a bit better. I'll definitely do that. So I'm willing to accommodate people the more I know about them. But yeah, if I don't know anything about a company, it's usually 50 up front, 50 just before delivery. I've been doing 100% up front for years. And... I also tend not to, with new clients, let myself or now the, the business that I own, um, it's a bigger operation, we're not doing enough business with anyone that it would be in any way catastrophic to write it off. So like our initial engagement with a client, you know, a few thousand a month or something, we're not going to be sending invoices because we like, we're doing recurring services like running companies' blogs and stuff. So if we send them an invoice on the first, we don't refuse to write blog posts for them until they pay. But we're never letting the outstanding balance get into any territory that would be catastrophic so that even if we have to write it off, I mean, it would be a bummer, but it wouldn't be a big deal. And it's really in proportion to how much we trust the business and how long a history we've had with them to what extent we even let that credit ride. So that's been my and now our management strategy of of that kind of risk. To reiterate what Jeremy was saying, get them to sign and approve sign and approve everything in your policy and uh especially including the payment plan and those terms and conditions for sure yeah i mean boy i think since 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 i've started doing training really this hasn't been an issue um um basically mostly because i'm dealing with big companies so they might be slow to pay just because it's like net plus 60 or something but it'll come like clockwork and if something doesn't happen i actually just much to my embarrassment i got a call from a big client last week saying, hey, did you ever invoice us for two courses last year? And oops, I never did. So they actually, like, they're going to pay. They discovered it because it was on their books. The client told me uh, that I'd forgotten to invoice them for a not small amount of money. Oops. Uh, And so now they're going to pay me (laughs) because it was on their books. And, like, you know, we we agreed. So so big companies uh, are very sort of by the book in that sense. Um, and they're not going to mess around, even if they are, as I said, slow and inflexible. That actually, to, if it makes you feel any better, happens more often than you might think. Like we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 contractors that do work or have done work for us. And you'd be surprised at how many of them, like Angela, who does accounts payable, will actually go and say, 
you never invoiced us for stuff like eight months ago and we're trying to send out 1099s. I need an invoice from you. Um, so it's something that happens in the freelancer world more than I ever would have thought. I've had a couple of a couple of developers who work for me that I'm like, hey, just waiting on that invoice from two months ago because <laughs> holding on to your money here. <laughs> yeah, I had to explain to them like it wasn't even to the, the building department, the accounting department, it was to the my my liaison there, the uh, in the training department. I said, look, I'm a one person operation, and this happens about two three times a year. It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens. It happens that like. You guys had it happen twice. Oh, well, we'll figure it out. Um, and by figure it out means they're going to pay me. So good deal. And the great thing that can also happen, which I've experienced a couple of times, even though big companies can be, like you said, 30 to 60 days sometimes to pay because it has to go through payroll and all of that. They, um, a lot of times at the end of the year, to be able to get budgets for their for sort of their digital assets and things like that. They'll have to max out their previous year's budget. So they're like, hey, just reaching out because we've got an extra six grand sitting, <laughs> sitting in the budget that we have to spend in the next three weeks. So it's like, here's a chunk of money and then maybe they can bank hours or something like that too. But uh, yeah, so some of them have money that they have to spend. So there's money out there, that's for sure. So um, any other general, oh, uh, subject though of like, um, feeling things out in an initial prospect call. I think like one of the, you know, I guess overarching piece of advice that I could offer to somebody who's out there listening, the more you script the sales conversation, the more you give prospects an opportunity to disqualify themselves, like the less you have to do it. And what I mean is um, a guy who I talked to once that was a sales consultant was like, somebody is going to dictate your sales conversation, like either you or them. And if it's them, they're going to dictate all of these terms to you. If you work with them and say, this is how we work, uh, we invoice up front. Uh, this is how we provide updates. This is our standard contract. Here's our, you know, auxiliary clauses and assumptions and all this. The more you walk them through that, if you give them those terms, they have all kinds of ways to push back. And if they do that, they're surfacing those red flags where they're, you know, you're saying this is how I work and they're arguing with you about it. Those are ways that you can disqualify them fairly immediately. And um, it kind of gets that awkwardness out of the way, whether it's your, you know, invoicing terms or, or whatever it is you're doing. I'm a big believer in making that initial sales conversation almost an attempt to disqualify them. So, um, you know, here's all these different ways that we work. Also, why are you calling me? Um, why not do this yourself? What have you tried before, et cetera? Um, so in general, I'm a huge believer in, in like letting them disqualify themselves and raise their own red flags and show themselves the door instead of like relying on your own intuition to do it. So I think one other thing um, to watch out for is to make sure that you don't let um, a previous good experience with either an individual or a company cloud your judgment and prevent you from seeing new red flags on a new project or something. This can especially crop up like if you, you know, have a contact that works at one company and then leaves and goes to work at a different company. It's not unusual for that person to say, hey, I've got, you know, I've worked with Jeremy before. I know he's great. I know he can do some good stuff for us. Let's bring him in. Um, but it's important to realize that when that person has moved to a new company, that's an entirely new client. You may have a new contact there, 
but it's a different company. It's a different culture. Uh, things will be very different. And like I've, I've had this happen where a guy that I worked with was at one company. He went to a different one, brought me in for a job. Things went great there. He went to a third company and I thought, you know, this is great. He's going to get me into another new company. Um, and the third company things just, it wasn't a good fit. And I was, I was really tempted to say, I like working with this guy. He's been great projects. I want to do another one, but you know, I had to be kind of override that previous goodwill and say, no, there are red flags with this company where, you know, my contact said, Hey, this is going to be a super important project. And we normally have kind of a mid-level person that would be able to crank out this thing for us. But this is really important. We wanted somebody good. So you obviously came into my mind and I want to get you working on this thing. And then it came back several weeks later, you know, as we're going through negotiations, well, we kind of want to pay the same thing that we pay our mid-level guy. Um, but this is more important. And it's like, no, I, I'm sorry. No matter how great these projects that we've done together in the past have been, I just can't make a good case for this one. Um, and so it's kind of hard to not let that, previous goodwill sort of cloud your judgment about new new work that even looks interesting. Any final thoughts and advice before we head into picks, folks? You don't have the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the little bit of wisdom I'd close with is trust your gut. If you have a bad feeling, you probably do for a reason, and it can be hard uh, if you don't have a ton of business lined up or if you can't really articulate what the problem is, but like if your gut is telling you that this isn't going to be a good fit, you need to have a really, really compelling reason, I would say, to, to go against that and try it anyway. Yeah, I, th I think I'm going to echo that um, and add to it, which is if you're desperate or if you don't have a lot of work and you say, well, better a, a bad client than no client, no, I promise you, better no client than a bad client. It'll, it'll cost you time and money and agitation and, and so on and so forth. Uh, better to wait for the good one to come along. Yeah, and that's a fast road to burnout too if you're constantly taking Ooh. on clients that, you're, uh, that are not easy to deal with but also like not really fulfilling in any way. Okay, and with that, I think we'll head into picks. Uh, Marg, what do you got for us this week? This week, I would have to say the Headspace app. Uh, I use it every day. It's a 20 minute, uh, I think up to 20 minutes. I think you can choose anywhere from five to 20 minute meditation. The guy's Australian accent is very soothing. <laughs> There's a free version, but I do have the paid version, which is um, fairly inexpensive. I think it's like 50 bucks a year or something like that as well. But for anyone I have a really hard time meditating they, and they do like guided meditations, uh, such a nice voice to listen to, and it's over in a heartbeat, super easy to digest, and it reminds you every day, and it starts like you get going on a streak, and then once you're sort of on a streak, you don't want to break it, so it's good. Excellent. Jeremy, what about you? Uh, I'm going to pick Tales from the Loop, which is a series on Amazon Prime that we've been watching. Uh, we're only a few episodes in so far, but it is sort of a sci-fi-based Twilight Zone type of a thing, as far as I can tell so far. Um, it's interesting. Uh, each episode is kind of standalone, but each one is happening 
in this one particular town and you see some of the same cast of characters from story to story, but so far they don't really seem to be like leading into, you know, all tying together. I suspect that may change towards the end of the season, but we just don't know yet. So Tales from the Loop on Amazon Prime. Excellent. Eric, what about you? I want to go with something topical to the episode. It was an audiobook I listened to, I don't know, maybe a year ago. And I don't remember the name, but we'll get it right in the show notes with the link. But it's something like the Pumpkin Plan or Pumpkin Entrepreneur. And it's a guy who's a serial entrepreneur that wrote this book um, that kind of heavily applies the so-called 80-20 principle, um, Pareto principle, that you will have like 80% of your problems from 20% of your clients. And, you know, maybe that the best 20% of your clients will account for 80% of your revenue. So it's about culling the worst and then looking at the best and figuring out how you can turn the rest into the best. And I think it's kind of topical here, even though we're talking about uh, looking out for bad prospects, where you have this idea, this feeling that it's going to be hard to come by business or you can't afford to get rid of uh, the bad clients or to pass on the bad prospects. And it's a really compelling counter to that idea. And it talks about how you can get so stuck into the cycle of being so busy dealing with bad clients that you can't actually find good clients. So I feel like for anybody who's listening to all this advice and thinking, well, that doesn't apply to me, I'm just getting started, or I can't do that, I can't afford it, that like anybody out there that's a freelancer that's running a business, you not only can you afford to not deal with bad clients, like you can't afford not to. And um, I think this, uh, this author did a really good job of kind of walking through that and creating a framework um, for you to feel good about doing it. So that is my pick for the week. Very cool. Um, so I've lately been speaking at a lot of conferences, but of course these are all online conferences because people aren't actually going anywhere, let alone large rooms full of many people. Um, and so I've been using ScreenFlow. I've been using it for a few years already for doing all my screencasts, but I've been using it really heavily uh, over the last month or two. And I finally actually started using more and more of its functionality. Um, and I'm just, blown away by all the things they thought of that you can do. Um, even someone without a lot of artistic video editing experience like me can actually pull it off pretty well. So uh, it's a Mac only app as far as I know, but it works really nicely and um, everything I want to do, I'm able to do and then some. So uh, ScreenFlow, I think they're up to version nine now, but I've been using it for a few years. And that's it. Thanks everyone for a great discussion. Thanks to listeners out there. If you have questions or suggestions, please get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you. And we will see you next week on The Business of Freelancing. And that's it. Thanks, everyone, for a great discussion. Thanks to listeners out there. If you have questions or suggestions, please get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you. And we will see you next week on The Business of Freelancing.